Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians 3. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these guys have some. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 3, and you can keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 3. In the midst of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he gave instruction on prayer, including what we call the Lord's Prayer. But before he gave that model prayer, it's really more accurately called the Disciples' Prayer, since it was a prayer for them, not him. Before he did that, though, he took some time to teach them how not to pray. He said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, Do not be like the hypocrites and unbelievers. And he says, do not be like them because the way they pray shows that they do not believe in God as he truly is. Jesus says, do not be like them because when they pray, it's as though God is insignificant to their praying. He said in verse five of that chapter, Matthew six, five, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. So notice the objective is to be seen by others. And so God is really insignificant. The way they pray not only reveals belief in a God, small g, who's insignificant, but they also pray as if God is impersonal. Jesus said, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. It's as if for them that God is a kind of cosmic slot machine, and if you keep pulling the same lever, you're bound to hit the jackpot. Unbelieving prayer is to a God who is insignificant and impersonal. And Jesus says they also conceive of him as ignorant as well. He said, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Seeing a God who is insignificant and impersonal and ignorant are just some of the beliefs that are exposed in the way we pray. Now, notice I say in the way we pray, because Jesus warned us, his followers, in verse one of Matthew chapter six, to be careful that we do not behave like those who do not truly believe in him as he is. And what we believe about who he is will be revealed in how we speak to him, in how we pray. So one author has said this, every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. Now today we're going to continue our series in 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to see what it means to, in the words of the title of today's message, and that title is at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so you can follow along. The title is Pray With Your Eyes Open, meaning pray in a way that accurately addresses who God is. We're going to see that today from 1 Thessalonians 3. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father and our God, we are before you as your people. We acknowledge you as we have already in prayer and in song, that you are the God who is ultimately incomprehensible, that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet, Lord, we delight in that very thing. Because we are made by a God who is above us, who is transcendent. Oh, Lord, help us to resist the temptation then, to bring you down and make you in our image. 
Help us to see you as you are, and thank you for revealing who you are in your word to us. Help us to see that today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I say in your outline, first of all, that proper prayer reflects an accurate view of God. An accurate view of God. We see the importance of how we approach God in the encounter that Moses had with God back in the first part of your Bible, the second book of your Bible, Exodus chapter 3. Many of you know that story. God told Moses to go back to Egypt and to command that Pharaoh let my people go, but Moses was hesitant. And he asked God, who shall I say has sent me? And God responded by saying, tell him, I am has sent you. I am who I am, God said. The name that God gives to Moses, I am who I am, is a revelation of God's utter and complete self-sufficiency. It's a revelation of what theologians call God's aseity. It comes from a, a Latin term. He alone is of himself. God and only God is dependent on nothing. And this means for Moses and for Israel, and by extension for us, that God is not dependent on Pharaoh's cooperation or anyone else's to accomplish what he has promised. This name of God, I am, is the root form of the name Yahweh, or the anglicized form of Jehovah. John Calvin said that this name is given to us in the Old Testament Quote, that our minds may be filled with admiration as often as his incomprehensible essence is mentioned. And that incomprehensible essence given in the name Yahweh is mentioned more than 5,000 times in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, in the giving of his name, God identifies himself as the self-existing God who needs nothing in order to be who he is and do what he purposes to do. And so, friends, when we come to God in prayer, that's who we're addressing. And the way Paul prays, and this is a recording of a prayer of Paul now in 1 Thessalonians 3, the way Paul prays in verses 11 through 13 tells us a number of other things about the God to whom we pray. I say in your outline this, that God is one. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself Clear the way for us to come to you. Paul, who wrote this, believes in and prays to a single God. Now, I say that because in the Greek text, and you know that your New Testament was originally written in Greek, verse 11 begins with the singular pronoun he. And the verb in verse 11, clear, clear our way to come to you, is also singular. So we could translate verse 11 as, may he clear the way for us to come to you. May this one singular God, the only God who is, perform this request that I am making. That goes all the way back to God's dealings with his people Israel in the first part of your Bible. Where God said this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's called the Shema. Of Israel. It's taken from the Hebrew word for hear, the first word in that verse. The Hebrew word is Shema. And that verse became part of the daily prayer in ancient Israel, similar to the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer for us, our Father in heaven. This verse, along with other passages from the first books of the Bible, were prayed in the morning and in the evening. 
This prayer has been one of the most influential traditions in Jewish history, and it functioned both as a Jewish pledge of allegiance and as a hymn of praise. The Israelites had been steeped in polytheistic cultures for generations when God said that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Surrounding them had been cultures that believed in polytheism, many gods, not one god. From their roots in Canaan to their long years in Egypt to traveling through Canaanite territory through the wilderness, they've been surrounded by people worshiping many different gods. Moses clearly believes that loyalty, obedience, and love to their one true God is the only way to life. And one of the greatest threats to Israel's future was dividing their allegiance between many gods. And so the Shema is a daily reminder, the Lord our God alone is God. Proper prayer reflects an accurate view of God, that he is one. There is one God. But secondly, it also reflects that this one God is triune, as in Trinity, triune. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. Now, Paul is praying to God in the singular. We already saw that. But then he defines this singular God as God the Father and our Lord Jesus. The use of that singular pronoun himself and the singular verb, clear, with now a plural subject, God the Father and our Lord Jesus, emphasizes the unity of the Father and the Son as God. Paul prays to Jesus in just the same way he prays to the Father. He joins them together as the objects of his request. And Paul's prayer shows that he considers Jesus to be equal with the Father in dignity and in power as God. One commentator says such consideration should be possible only if we understood that Jesus was essentially one in nature with the Father. This view of Christ's deity, the fact that he is God, is heightened by Paul's assigning of the title Lord to Jesus in the context of this unity with the Father. In fact, so potent was the evidence of this passage for the deity of Jesus that Athanasius, that's a church history figure, going back to the first few centuries of Christianity, when there was a controversy about the nature of Jesus and is he truly God, and Athanasius said, most definitely the Bible teaches thee is God. And this Athanasius, before the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., you argued from this very passage, And he pointed out that the pronoun he refers to father and son in combination. As Jesus was teaching about his work and its relationship to the work of the father, the Bible records this in John chapter 5. They tried to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then the famous, what we call Great Commission. I mean, Jesus had done these things throughout his ministry. Those who heard him understood his words and his actions to mean that he was equating himself with God. John chapter 8, they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he made himself equal with God. Here in John 5, we see that. And then Jesus did that throughout his, his ministry. And then he comes to the end of his ministry. Matthew chapter 28, the very last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended Back to the Father, having completed his work, we call it the Great Commission. He said this, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name. And the name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let me explain that just for a bit. The people of God are associated with the name of God in baptism. We've seen how important the name of God, Yahweh, is. In the words of theologian Scott Oliphant, we can see how monumental it is then when Christ himself, toward the end of his earthly ministry, announced the final climactic name of God to his disciples and to the world. From now on, Jesus is saying, the pronunciation of the name of God, a name which will mark my people in the church, is the one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's crucial to recognize that what Jesus says is not baptizing them in the names, plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The language he uses is very clear and explicit. Baptism is to be done in the one name, it's singular, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in affirming it then, we also confess that we cannot comprehend what we acknowledge In the providence of God and by his grace, the church's commitment in its formulation of Trinitarian doctrine was to affirm what scripture teaches, even if that affirmation was impossible for us to get our minds around. And it is. It's not just that the church affirmed God's incomprehensibility. Most theists, even if they're not Christians, they just believe in a God out there. They would agree that God is incomprehensible. But the church was committed, now get this, to confessing the content of of that incomprehensibility to the extent that God's revelation would allow. In other words, given that God cannot be fully known and understood, that he's incomprehensible, it seems natural that when God reveals himself, he would do so in a way that would allow us to say and believe certain truths about him, truths that would rise above our minds, even above creation itself. Our confession of God as triune is the fullest expression this side of heaven of his glo- of the glory of our incomprehensible God. We simply cannot understand how it can be that God is one in three. But friends, we affirm it with all the vigor and certainty that Scripture requires of us. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God as well. In the encounter that Peter had with a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, they brought an offering, they pretended that they had brought a full offering, but they had held some back. That lie was identified, and then Peter pronounces the sentence to them. He said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then just shortly after that, he says, you have lied to God. In lying to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God. And so proper prayer reflects an accurate view of God, that he is one, he's also triune, and I say in your outline, this God is unified. Unified. This prayer goes to the Father and Son because both work to the same ends in a unified way. So they undertake on behalf of God's people in unison. They're never at cross purposes. So we wouldn't do with the Father, Son, and Spirit what kids sometimes do with parents. You go to the one who you think will give you what you want. Or as I was taught in my two-week stint, two-week stint at a Catholic school when I was in high school. I spent two weeks. I'll tell you about that sometime. In the religion class, the nun who taught it said, it's often better to go to Mary than to Jesus because Mary can intervene with her son. This means that, contrary to popular understanding, the Father is every bit as loving toward believers as Jesus is. 
And the two are working in concert for the salvation of his church. And that Paul should so clearly express a unity of nature and of purpose between the Father and of Jesus at such an early point in his ministry shows that the divine nature of Jesus, the deity of Christ, was basic. It was foundational to Christian teaching from the very beginning. This truth was not the result of some doctrinal innovation. That's what some people say, that it came about later. No, this was foundational at the very beginning of Christianity, of the Christian, the Christian church. The Father and Son are in agreement with what they carry out to do, as is the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance, notice, in accordance with the will of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in tandem. They're unified. Proper prayer reflects an accurate view of God. He's one, he's triune, he's unified. I say in your outline, he's sovereign. Paul's prayer shows not only his belief in the full deity of Christ, but also his certainty about the sovereignty, the full authority and control of God over his world. His first request in verse 11 is for God to clear the way for us to come to you, which suggests that Paul was counting on God to intervene sovereignly in human affairs so as to permit Paul to return to visit the church in Thessalonica. One commentator says this, Paul believed that God's control over the events of life extended even to the practicalities of travel plans. And consequently, he thought it both right and necessary to pray about those things. Paul did not think that God was too busy managing the universe to help in his, Paul's affairs. The same is true for us then, friends. This sovereign God is in control of everything and we are invited to come to him And ask him to move heaven and earth in accordance with his will in order to bring about his glory and use us in that process. And it was because Paul relied on God's sovereignty, he practiced what we see in the first part of your Bible in Proverbs chapter 16. Commit to the Lord whatever you do. And he is the one who establishes your plans. Friends, we go to God because we believe he can do what is necessary to make our request happen if it's in his will to do so. Proper prayer has an accurate view of God, that he is one, that he's triune, that he's unified, that he's sovereign. And I say in the outline, God is father. God is father. Believers have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Praying to our God and Father, verse 11, indicates that Paul has access to the Father as a dearly beloved child, as do we. God is Father in his nature, but only those who believe in Jesus gain the right to be considered his children. So John chapter 1 says this, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, of course, you know, we go through these five things. These are just five things that are true about God that you see in just this one verse, verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 3. And we go through that and you go, wow, I'll never be able to pray again. <laughs> I got to think of all that every time I pray. No, because in fact, there's even much more in God's word to think about with regard to God. But the larger point here is not that you think about every aspect of God's character every time you pray. Even Paul didn't do that. None of us can do that. But it is that we focus our minds on God as the priority, not ourselves. 
we're addressing God and we think about the one to whom we are coming. We think about his nature and we think about his ability and we think about our, our relationship with him as our father. Proper prayer reflects an accurate view of God, I say in your outline, and an accurate view of ministry. Paul, again, who wrote this and who prayed this, knows that success in ministry depends on God. And so he asked God in verse 11 to clear our way to come to you. And then he petitions the Lord for their increase in love. Verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, considering how little Christian instruction the Thessalonians received before Paul was forced to leave them, he'd only been there a maximum, maximum of three months and probably not even that long. And then he was forced to leave and he wants to get back. And so he he didn't have much time to give them very much instruction. And as a result of that, it's remarkable that this is one of the burdens of Paul's prayer, that their love increase. He doesn't restrict his prayer to doctrinal considerations, praying only that the understanding of the believers might be increased. He prays that their love might increase and overflow. And it's important to recognize how much that kind of conduct would fly in the face of the conventions of the culture that surrounded Thessalonica. In most layers of Greco-Roman society, a kind of social contract existed between those who were perceived to be the benefactors and then there was everybody else. Entire sets of relationships turned on those customs. So a fairly well-to-do person might dispense food and preferment and employment and honor and money. In return, that person demanded loyalty and various forms of service or privileged information. If you had any hope of climbing up within the system, it was essential that you meet those obligations. An ordinary worker would not be inclined to show particular affection or loyalty to his co-workers. He would want to show loyalty and affection to someone who was his benefactor, someone a little higher up on the pecking order. And Paul here is saying that your love needs to flow and increase on a horizontal level for one another. So Paul's going to have none of what the culture is saying, not in the church or even in the way Christians treat people outside the church. He prays here that Christians love will increase and overflow for each other. That is for fellow believers in the church and for everyone else, people outside the church. He writes a little later in this letter of first Thessalonians in chapter five, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. And why? Why does he pray for that? Why is that necessary? Friends, this is a hard and brutal world. There are many ways that people profess affection for one another, many forms of pseudo love, whether in that culture or today in our own. But Christian love, mature, deep and unqualified Christian love is a rare commodity. And when it's displayed, it speaks volumes to a society that gorges itself in self-interest, in lust, in mutual admiration packs, even while it knows very little of true love. Show me a church where the choir is known as the war department. Do you know that that's often the case in churches? 
music becomes a battleground. That's why some have said when Lucifer fell from heaven, he landed in the choir loft. But you show me a church where it becomes the war department, where people divide over evangelistic strategies or over even foolish things like the color of carpet. And I'll show you a church that has not been praying along these lines in verse 12 for a very long time. But on the opposite end, on the other hand, we'll see profound profound spiritual renovation if by God's grace we make it our commitment not to put anyone down, hear this, not to put anyone down except putting them down on our prayer list. But ultimately, it is God who produces this. And that shapes our view of ministry, both to one another throughout the church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. The Bible teaches that we plant and we water, but it's only God that gives the increase. It's only God who then produces the effect. And all of us who serve God today, in whatever capacity, as servants of God, we need to learn this lesson. That Christians who are effective in evangelism have to learn to pray for God to provide them with opportunities to speak about Jesus along with the words to speak when the opportunities arrive. Pastors who want their preaching to be effective in people's lives are those who pray for God's power on his word and are prayed for by their congregations. Churches that dynamically serve the gospel have learned to pray for the needed provision to expand their ministry. And on a personal level, marriages and families who enjoy close spiritual bond are those who pray for God to grant that very thing. So Paul's view of ministry is grounded in the sovereignty of God to produce the results. And the key result that he prays for is love among God's people. It's the lubricant that moves ministry forward. Proper prayer reflects an accurate view of God, an accurate view of ministry, and lastly, an accurate view of the Christian life. Verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Now, what's the connection between the love prayed for in verse 12 and now the holiness that's prayed for here? Well, love for others causes us to become more serious about repenting of our sins, if we truly love others. Because now we're aware of the impact of how we talk and how we behave and our attitudes toward other people. Because we have that heightened awareness, because we love other people, it moves us toward repentance, toward moving in a new direction, which is then one of the stepping stones toward toward holiness. And so because of that, one of the best ways to advance in your progress in holiness is to become involved in ministry toward other people. Realizing that our attitude, speech, and lifestyle are making an impact on those we love, whether for good or for ill, that will strongly motivate us to press on in godliness through God's word, through prayer, and striving against sin. Love, that is Christ's love for us and our love for others, strengthens our hearts so that our selfish desires decrease and our character and habits are molded after the pattern of Jesus. Now, this prayer to be blameless does not mean, of course, that we never sin. But it means that the defining characteristic of our lives should be godliness. When someone thinks of us, they should think he or she is a godly person. And like the success that we ask for in our ministry endeavors and the love that we need for others, 
All of this is only accomplished ultimately by God, but it involves us. As Dr. Combs has said, our progress in the Christian life is inevitable, but it's not automatic. It's inevitable, but it's not automatic. We're responsible to respond to God's work. And that's why we have passages like Philippians 2. Where the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation, but work outward the salvation that you have. Work out your salvation for, why? Because it is God who works in you. But God works in you for you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So it's not automatic. It involves us. And then the next verses say, Become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I, Paul, will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Friends, when the Lord comes or we die first, should the Lord tarry, a godly life should be characteristic of each one of us. Now that holy life does not obtain our salvation. But it proves that we have it. It's evidence that we are indeed believers. Practical evidence of a changed life grants us assurance of faith now, since Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. And likewise, on the day of Christ's return, holiness will attest to the reality of the faith by which we are saved. And Jesus taught this concept in his parable of the ten virgins. Only the five virgins who kept oil in their lamps were ready to meet the bridegroom when he came suddenly in the night. And Jesus urged, quote, watch, therefore, for, you know, neither the day nor the hour. In 1994, a celebration was held at Westminster Abbey in London to celebrate the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Confession of Faith. One of the speakers was Eric Alexander, who spoke about Paul and the early Christians as they faced persecution and difficulty. He pointed out that their knowledge of what God was doing in history and for their own salvation injected a certainty into their tentative, weak, poor faith. It gave many of them a security in a desperately insecure world. Were we more heavenly minded in our living, it would do the same for us, he says. Alexander went on to ask a series of pointed questions to make us think about our lives. He asked, what's really, what is real, the really important thing that's happening in the world in our generation? Where are the really significant events taking place? What is the most important thing? Where do we need to look in the modern world to see the most significant event from a divine perspective? Where is the focus of God's activity in history? How would you answer those questions? What would you identify as the great marvel of our time, the most interesting thing that demands our attention today? And Eric Alexander gave the answer. The most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. And the rest of history is simply a stage that God erects for that purpose. God is calling out a people and he is perfecting them and he is changing them. History's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on this bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus Christ arrives in his infinite glory. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. 
Now, he finished by remembering the last time he had been in London. And at the time, Westminster Abbey had been covered in scaffolding as workers were cleaning and beautifying it. And one could not see its true beauty, he noted, but one was aware that something of great significance was happening behind that scaffolding. Something of majestic beauty was to be revealed. And then drawing on that image, he applied it to our lives and to the church in much the same way that Paul prayed for God to cause our awareness of our future in Christ to spur us on to holiness. There will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole creation, this is my masterpiece? He'll be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. In the forefront of it all will be the Lord Jesus himself who will come and say, here am I and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. What a blessed day that will be. And when we pray, we pray with that in mind. We pray with that as the goal in mind. That's the day for which we are laboring. In that day, We will be resurrected. We need to live for that day. The day when God will manifest his glory in his people. If we live for that day, it will change our living and it will change our serving. And friends, it will change our praying as well. Here's your take home truth. How we talk to God shows what we think about God. Let's bow in prayer before him. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, incomprehensible to our minds, but absolutely real and living and the only true and living God. We come to you with profoundly thankful and humbled hearts as we think about how majestic your character is and how far above us you are, and yet... You have deigned to live among us, Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you have loved us. And God the Son became man. His life was given for us on the cross. And he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. Oh, our God, we owe you our lives both now and for eternity. Lord, help us to be people who contemplate who you are. Every moment of every day, you should be right at the fore of our thinking. And everything that happens, we should be transacting with you. And as a result, Lord, it will change everything. It will change our perspective on all of our circumstances, and it will certainly change the way we approach you. Oh, God, forgive us for treating you like the divine waiter who's there to move at our beck and call. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by reading your word and remembering what your word tells us about the way you have revealed yourself, who you really are, so that we approach you accordingly. Then approaching you accordingly, we're filled with humility, but we're also filled with profound joy because we have a relationship with this God that we would have no ability to know except for your love for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for these truths. We ask you to help us this week to make them practical in our lives. 
in the circumstances that each of us are going to encounter that are unknown to us but fully known to you and on your calendar as a divine appointment. This week when they happen, help us to remember our sovereign God and help us to approach all things accordingly to bring you glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.